0: We have a socialized view of what it means to be a veteran, and that often looks like a white, cisgendered, straight male who was a combat arms person who fought on the front lines, so to speak. And that image in people's heads has the negative effect of not always making sure that an individual sees themselves as a veteran. And so we're always working to overcome that by telling a wider range of stories that sort of reflect the diversity that make up our military ranks and that makes up our veteran population.
1: Have you ever noticed that some of the best ideas come from unexpected places? Your next breakthrough may come from a leader facing similar challenges, but in a completely different sector. Welcome to Chief Influencer. I'm your host, Anthony Shop. Join us as we explore how today's successful leaders inspire, influence, and connect with others. Chief Influencer is a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board, who have teamed up to spotlight how great leaders and communicators are making their impact in the world. This episode is brought to you by the George Washington University's College of Professional Studies. With in-person and online programs, ranging from master's degrees in public relations strategy to certificate programs in digital communications, GW offers more than just the credentials to help working professionals get ahead, It prepares them to be leaders in their field. As a proud GW graduate myself, I can attest that faculty members combine academic rigor with real-world lessons that can't always be found in textbooks. Check out cps.gwu.edu for more information. I am so excited to introduce today's guest, Anthony Woods, Secretary of the Maryland Department of Veterans Affairs. Tony Woods leads the department whose mission is to assist veterans, active duty service members, and their families and dependents in securing benefits earned through uniformed service. Prior to his appointment in the Moore-Miller administration, Tony served as the executive director of the Quad Fellowship, a first-of-its-kind fellowship program designed to build ties among the next generation of scientists and technologists from Australia, India, Japan, and the United States. Tony's military career began when he attended West Point, and was commissioned as a Lieutenant in the U.S. Army. He served two tours of duty in Iraq where he earned a Bronze Star for his service. Tony was discharged from the U.S. Army in 2008 under the military's Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy, which barred members of the LGBTQ community from serving openly in the military. Tony worked with advocates to repeal the law and then resumed his service in the U.S. Army Reserve. He currently holds the rank of Major, and serves as an intelligence analyst assigned to the joint staff at the Pentagon. Tony's public service includes time as a White House fellow in the U.S. Office of Personnel Management under President Barack Obama. He served on former U.S. Veteran Affairs Secretary Bob McDonald's commission on minority veterans and serves on the Blue Star Families Advisory Board on race equity and inclusion. Secretary Woods, Tony, I'm so excited to spend time with you today. Welcome to Chief Influencer.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited about the conversation.
1: Well, I want to start by asking you, you know, Secretary of Veterans Affairs for the state of Maryland, that's a big job. And I'm wondering, who are some of the most important people or groups that you have to influence to achieve the impact that you want to make in Maryland and beyond?
0: Uh, Well, first and foremost, Maryland is home to over 360,000 veterans who have served in wars going all the way back to World War II, to some of our latest conflicts today. And so it's an exceptionally diverse veteran community. And one of the things that I've found is one of the most important challenges is is if we're going to make sure that veterans know uh, the benefits that they have and that they've earned through uniform service, we have to reach them where they are. And that creates real challenges for a relatively small department. Um, You know, we have got really good at reaching the Korean War and Vietnam era uh, generation of veterans. Where my department struggles is, is reaching um, our Gulf War and post 9 11 veterans, um, and also reaching veterans from uh, diverse backgrounds and communities. So right now, I would say we have a socialized view of what it means to be a veteran, and, and, and that often looks like a white, cisgendered, straight male who uh, was a combat arms uh, a person who fought on the front lines, so to speak. And that image in people's heads has the negative effect of not always making sure that an individual sees themselves as a veteran. And so we're always working to overcome that by telling a wider range of stories that sort of reflect the diversity that make up our our military ranks and that makes up our veteran population. So that's been one of the sort of fun new challenges that I've been trying to take on as I've taken
1: the helm of this department for the past six months. You know it occurs to me that it's such a challenge to reach that broad of an audience. And something that I know you've said before is that sometimes you even replace the question, are you a veteran? Because that may not connect with people and in the same way, can you talk about that? And what is the question you ask today?
0: You're exactly right. So instead of asking someone if they're a veteran, we ask, have you ever served? And what that does is it helps to kind of overcome that misconception or that sort of very narrow view of what people often identify. One of the challenges with that in particular for women, uh, women veterans often don't view themselves as veterans. Um, And so one of the things that we've found that it's really important to do is ask that question, have you ever served? And I would actually encourage um, anyone who is interested in reaching out to the military-connected community or to the veteran community to actually ask that a little bit differently. Perhaps they're trying to offer a new benefit or they believe that there is some sort of resource that this veteran ought to take advantage of. If you ask this person, hey, have you ever served in uniform, that that might change the answer. And so going back to the example that I mentioned, it's about 40% of women, uh, women veterans, uh, take advantage of one benefit, at least one benefit that they've earned through service. So that's a pretty low number relative to their male counterparts. And when you think about the impact that that has on their lives, so that is not taking advantage of GI Bill benefits, potentially. That's not taking advantage of VA home loan benefits. That's not gaining access to the eligible health care resources that they have available to them or the compensation that comes in the form of, uh, the form of a monthly um, compensation check. So that is money that is or resources that is being denied to that individual veteran to their family potentially and to their community so it is really important that we ask the question differently and that we reach uh, veterans where wherever they are
1: you know for veterans who uh, may not be taking advantage of the benefits that are available to them or may not feel as you know connected because of that that archetype that you shared I guess they must feel sort of left out in some ways. And I wonder, what are some of the things that your department is doing to make sure that they all feel included?
0: Well, you know, one of the things that has been one of the biggest privileges of of this role is working for a governor who is a veteran. And when Governor Moore ran for office, uh, his campaign slogan, pledge was leave no one behind. And a lot of folks think, oh, that's a, that's a pretty good sounding thing. And he certainly meant all Marylanders when he said it. But his experience as a veteran or in, in the military, that's actually a pretty solemn pledge that we make to one another on the battlefield, right? And so for me, I very much interpreted that as an obligation of, of looking for veterans who are at risk of being left behind, who are members of a marginalized community. Um, or who may not see themselves reflected in kind of the the, the more typical stories that we would tell about veterans or the veteran experience. And so as I alluded to a little earlier, telling a broader range of stories is just really important. So one of the things that we did in partnership with our legislature was pass a bill uh, that uh, honors the service of the 6888 uh, Postal Service Battalion, which was an all-Black female postal battalion in World War II, who had the responsibility of sorting all the mail, And helping to boost morale for our service members overseas. And so just sort of finding small examples to tell different stories, to elevate the experience of different folks really goes a long way. So that's one. There is just the sort of basic uh, bringing our department's communications capabilities into the later 21st century, uh, being more active on social media, realizing that veterans, particularly Gulf War or post-9-11 veterans, often consume video information, video just sort of better obviously on social media platforms so thinking through how do we do and, and, and portray more dynamic uh, content and material on more platforms in more ways um, and then you know thinking through well how do we meet uh, this generation of veterans where they are when it comes to, the, to their interests right so if there's a little bit more of a focus on health and wellness and fitness and nature and getting back out into the world, well, we've got to find them in those places and bring forward programming content experiences that uh, gives us an opportunity to run into them there, tell them that they've earned something great. Tell them that we want that we want them to be a part of uh, you know part of the the sort of the, the community in significant ways for the long term, and support them as best we can.
1: Yeah, I love that focus on inclusive storytelling because obviously it's really powerful when it comes to, The military and veteran community that you serve. But that's a lesson for leaders, no matter who their audience is, um, the importance of that. I think that obviously authenticity is an important element of that inclusive storytelling. And I'd love to talk about how you bring your own lived experiences to this cabinet role. After two deployments in Iraq, you were discharged under the don't ask, don't tell policy. You were even order to repay your, your tuition to Harvard, I believe. Um, but you fought to repeal this policy. And upon that, you were reinstated. How has that experience informed the work you do now?
0: Well, uh, I was really fortunate. So one of the risks when I was coming out was that obviously I would lose my career. Um, I was slated to go back and teach at West Point, which was a dream of mine uh, because it made such an impact on me. So I lost that opportunity or that ability. And one of the risks was that I would have to pay back uh, the tuition earned for uh, going to grad school at Harvard. I was fortunate that that was, was, was not the case, but, but that was actually one of the major reasons that motivated me to return uh, after the policy was repealed. I felt, um, and I felt actually after I graduated from West Point, that I owe our country a debt of gratitude. Uh, the military, uh, like it does for so many folks who are looking for a pathway into the middle class provided me with an exceptional opportunity, an exceptional education, the chance to give back and serve my country. And so my hope was to continue to do that for the long term. Um, but, you know, I think to your, your, your broader question, one of the things that I, you know, I've always struggled with, right? At the end of the day, I have the privilege of, of focusing on reaching veterans and serving their needs. and that is, a, that is one component of who I am. But to our earlier conversation, being able to make sure that veterans know that, you know, their Secretary of Veterans Affairs, um, you know, um, perhaps doesn't look like the average conception of what a veteran is, is thought to be, I think is important. Uh, so I make it a point to go out of my way to mention my, my, my husband where, where I can or the fact that we're married, right? There's always that kind of moment when you're being introduced at events or um, introduced right before you speak where, you know, part of it is the coming out process, right? That's by including it in my bio. But I think that's actually just quite important to, uh, to our mission, uh, to make sure that uh, veterans know that um, all of them are reflected in our work. They, they, they know that we um, care about their needs. We advocate for veterans whose experiences might be on the margins. Uh, so looking for veterans who, in the case of the retirement home that I run, who are experiencing, um, whether it's loneliness, social isolation, or uh, in the case of a poor performing facility, neglect and abuse. Uh, veterans who are experiencing homelessness or who might be struggling with mental health uh, challenges or risk of suicide, uh, substance misuse, right? So thinking about veterans who are potentially on the margins, um, I've very much appreciated the opportunity to advocate for trans veterans and ensuring that they're getting the rights that they've earned. Um, And I think by being open and authentic about who I am, it invites um, advocacy organizations and veteran-serving organizations to reach out to me who may not have otherwise done so and say, Hey, we realize you're a champion for veterans of all types. Uh, we want, we want your help in amplifying our voice. Uh, and that to me is how I reach a wider, more diverse range of veterans.
1: You know, as a leader, um, you represent something to some of the communities that you're part of. And one of the things that I hear a lot from other leaders is that, um, they love that there's obviously more representation among leadership these days, around public sector, private sector, from various you know communities and identities. And at the same time, that causes leaders to sometimes be put in a box and identified as you know the leader, you know the gay leader, or the African American leader, or whatever it may be. How have you balanced that authenticity of you know embracing? the special role that you play, you know, role model sort of position that you play for others as a leader with, um, I don't know if you've experienced that too, that sort of, you know, feeling boxed in.
0: To answer your question, I would say first and foremost, I take my cues from our governor, right? Governor Moore is actually the first African-American uh, elected to, to become governor of the state of Maryland. Um, he is the only African-American governor uh, in the country right now. And so I think one of the things that I've just admired the most about how he has approached that kind of mantle is he embraces it. He recognizes the honor and the privilege that that is. Um, He recognizes that there is a fair amount of, um, you know, you've got people who are looking to you and looking up to you, and you want to make sure that you hold yourself to a very high standard so you don't disappoint, right? And and I'm, I'm quite similar in that but I also admire and appreciate the fact that he knows his job is to represent all Marylanders. Right. And I, and I feel a similar obligation that my job is to, is to represent all veterans. Um, but that unique lived experience helps to inform your work. Right. And um, when uh, just as having a diverse team helps to make sure that you're thinking about problems in a holistic way or in a more nuanced way, um, bringing this lived experience as a black gay Veteran to the work uh, has only helped to equip me with um, the skills, the knowledge, the know-how of, of how do I reach populations that are tougher to reach? Uh, how do I understand their interests and how do I communicate to them effectively? Um, it has been a it's been a blessing. But I will say, throughout my career, I have often thought about you know um, I don't want to be pigeonholed or or sort of defined simply by a demographic trait. Uh, even if there's a tremendous amount of pride uh, you know, in being of that community and from that, community. Um, but you know, over time, I've really started to like to lean into that and to love that and to um, just make sure it's important that I, I I share that pride with anyone who will listen, and I bring that um, that pride to my work.
1: You know, you alluded to this earlier, but the military, obviously, there's a challenge with recruitment, and that's a challenge shared by membership associations and universities and employers of all kinds. Um, What are some of the lessons that you've learned about recruitment that could be valuable for others in different industries outside of the military?
0: Yeah, I think um, it's a really important challenge. Um, The military in particular is in a competition for talent. And if it doesn't create an environment that uh, individuals realize that they can bring their whole selves to work, um, that creates risk for it, right? That creates risk for the military. And that is partially, you know, one contributing factor to to why uh, it's having a hard time reaching those recruiting goals. I will say one of the most beautiful things about serving in the military is you very quickly move beyond the things that make you different from one another because you're focused on challenges that are greater than yourselves. And that's one of the most valuable lessons I ever I ever experienced in the military um, and, and that I've taken with me to this work, right? How do you create mission-driven teams where people feel like they're a part of something greater than themselves that allows them to ignore the things that make them different or see beyond the things that make them different, right? So that, that was one of my, my, my favorite aspects. Um, I will say that this younger generation of individuals, uh, Gen Z, um you know they really do want to see themselves reflected uh, and i think they've got a great eye for authenticity so if you think that having a few folks on your website or in your materials or in your brochures is going to be enough to uh, portray that this is an inclusive environment uh, they're going to start to ask the questions and realize well do you have employee resource groups well let's start to talk about promotion rates amongst people of color and women uh you know how are you handling things like harassment uh, you know how what 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 did you do in the wake of uh, george floyd's murder what were your corporate statements right it's those types of things where they realize is this a veneer of inclusivity and a, and a veneer of a commitment to diversity equity and inclusion or is this a long standing corporate held value uh and so i think that is 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 is, is my advice uh you know the best data plant a tree is 40 years ago or today Right. And so if a corporation has not sort of or an organization has not worked on uh, showing that commitment, start now and listen to the employees who would bring those perspectives and start now in in building that inclusive environment.
1: I think it's such an important lesson. Like you said, it can't just be a few photos on a website. And, you know, it sounds like you're bringing a real personal experience to it because you knew through the military service what it felt like to be on the inside and then an outsider. And now you're serving a community where some folks, they may be part of the community, but for whatever reason, they may feel like outsiders and we have to take efforts to welcome them back in and make sure that they feel like they belong, right?
0: Yeah. It's actually been one of the things that I've, um, it's been a privilege to actually, so in the military, um, you know, gave me, it, it's so rare that you can advocate for change and then take advantage of fact that, that 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 change occurred right there were people who fought generationally to end slavery who never you know who never got to see that that come about people who fought for generations to see voting rights for women or for people of color uh, and so uh, but didn't get the opportunity to take advantage of that benefit i am a rare lucky person who got to advocate for the repeal of don't tell which allowed members of the gay lesbian bisexual transgender community to serve openly Um, and well, excuse me, the lesbian, gay and bisexual community, were allowed to serve openly the trans community. Those, those rights were still not fully uh, afforded to them. And we need to make sure that that's not a kind of a political football that can go back and forth depending on administration. But, you know, I think to the, to your, to your broader point, um, it is a privilege to be able to serve and to continue to serve in this way. And so I feel like I have a special obligation to make sure I'm, I'm bringing my whole self to work. Um, I do feel a certain amount of pressure though, to realize that I represent a community and um, when I serve. and uh, I try to take a little bit of extra pride in that, but I also feel a, an extra sense of obligation I'm trying to do the best that I can uh, to 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 represent. Um, bringing that aspect of my work uh, here to the state of Maryland has been um, been been a privilege and something that I you know I try to lean into and, embrace as much as I can.
1: I have a feeling there are a lot of leaders who can. Identify with that tension of feeling the privilege, um, as well as the pressure and, you know, appreciate mm-hmm. you being honest about that and, and sharing that experience because it's, a, it's a real experience for people who are, um, you know, pioneers and who are in a role, um, that, you know, members of the community haven't been in before.
0: And I think, you know, to, to that point, there is something about giving yourself the grace of, of, uh, of, of ignoring the feeling or the sort of voice in your head that sort of kind of reinforces imposter syndrome, which makes you feel like, you know, you don't belong there or you, you haven't earned this or all those types of things. No, nope. you've got you to quiet those. You've got to work as hard as you can and you got to lean into, into the work um, and do the best that you can for the limited time that you have the privilege of serving in a role like this.
1: Um, Um, You know, I'm curious, you have obviously spent a lot of time in the military, uh, which is known for being very hierarchical and having a traditional structure. And then you founded the Quad Fellowship at Schmidt Futures, which is a philanthropic initiative of former Google CEO, Eric Schmidt. And I'm wondering what lessons you learned um, from that experience or working with him, because I suspect that that might've been um, structured a little bit differently. It might've been a bit flatter than the military background that you came from.
0: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, learning how individuals, particularly technically minded individuals solve problems, is just, uh, it's just a fascinating uh, way of going about doing things. I will say Eric Schmidt, uh, deeply committed to national security, has a great appreciation for military, uh, and, and, you know, some of those aspects of hierarchy as well. But, you know, when I, you know, I mentioned earlier, the military is in a competition for talent. Um, Eric Schmidt founded Schmidt Futures really as, an, as a space where people could kind of give back and, and work on really tough problems, usually at the intersection of, of uh, where, where technology can make an important difference. And so uh, we had the privilege because of his background coming from Google, where some of the most exceptional minds in technology wanted to work for, you know, away from Google, right? At Schmidt Futures. And what it taught me is that people are not always motivated by money. They're really motivated by the opportunity to solve really hard problems. So I guess my advice to those who are working in the nonprofit sector or in in, in government is, you know, showcase the hard problems that you're trying to solve, make it clear that a person who has a technology background can come and make an immediate difference, uh, remove some of the barriers that they might encounter when they arrive so they can really get to work solving a hard problem and feeling like they're a part of a mission-driven team who's adding value. And you can attract people who are currently making a million dollars a year at some Silicon Valley tech company. They will come and work for you for very, very small amounts of money because they're motivated by the opportunity to give back. And that was a lesson that we learned uh, for the department of defense is that they really have, they're sitting on a lot of really interesting hard problems. That's true here in Maryland state government. There are very significant uh, challenges that would be solved by bringing a technology lens uh, and technology skill. Uh, And so I just think people ought to be encouraged, know that you can attract that talent and win that talent. And you don't have to talk about money first. You can talk about making a difference.
1: Yeah. Love that. Um, you know, one of the things that we hear from other leaders, other chief influencers, is that they struggle sometimes uh, to share their work. They don't want to seem too self-promotional. And, um, you know, you're obviously highlighting, you know, really important work that your department's doing, and, and you've done this in, you know, other roles as well. I-, I wonder if you can share your own experience with that, Any lessons that you might have about, um, you know, dealing with those concerns? <laughs> you
0: are, uh, you're definitely hitting on uh, one of my uh, sort of biggest challenge points. Uh, I, oddly enough, for a person who's ran for office or who serves in a, in a role like I do now, I actually really hate being the center of attention. Uh, and so uh, I work with a leadership coach, uh, Michelle Detondo, really, really wonderful, brilliant woman. And one of the things that she uh, helped me do is to realize that when I um, do more to promote uh, the work uh, that I happen to be doing, uh, well, for me, I love showcasing the work that my team is doing, right? And so my, my advice to those who have a hard time putting themselves out there is, well, if you could put the organization that you represent out there, if you could put the team out there, if you could um, you know, really use these as, as a platform and an opportunity to showcase uh, that kind of work, and then I think the other point uh, where, where I have had to lean into being comfortable telling my own story is when it's for uh, serving and advancing um, you know some sort of broader organizational need, right? The fact that people need to see that uh, veterans come in all shapes, sizes, colors, sexual orientations, and backgrounds, right? Um, and so realizing that there is a, 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 a real potential benefit to you leaning into that discomfort, leaning into that bashfulness, bashfulness, and getting over that. Uh, for the purpose of advancing your work, advancing your mission, or uh, getting the word out there. So that's my advice. Um, use these as opportunities to showcase the great work of your team uh, and then realize that you're going to have a bigger impact on others than you realize so you need to kind of get out of your shell. And that's what I've tried to do.
1: Yeah, and I remember you telling me a story about when you were working on the Quad Fellowship, um, you had a member of your team that, you know, you were able to Identify opportunities to sort of uh, let someone else get get some of the spotlight to advance the work. Am I remembering that right?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, that to me is is really one of the best things um, about leadership is uh, and and one of the things i I've just sort of always enjoyed since the military. One of the things I walked away from my time in service was, just kind of recognizing that uh, in the case of the army, you don't, you don't have the choice of picking who gets to be on your team, right? It's sort of a random number generator assigns you a bunch of soldiers and you have the obligation to look, uh, you know, to sort of determine with each person, what is it that makes them special and how do you bring that out of them uh, when it counts, right? When you are trying to accomplish a mission or do something really important. And yes, in the private sector, yes, in government, you can, you can fire people in theory, But, um, or definitely in the case of the private sector, but uh, taking that time to find what makes each individual special is is really, uh, really powerful. So you're absolutely right. On the Quad Fellowship, there was a woman, exceptionally talented, um, who I really realized was a very gifted public speaker. And just like can command an audience, can light up a room, is phenomenal on a panel, and finding opportunities to, uh, yes, I could have taken most of the opportunities to advance the work and to talk about the work, but really looking for those opportunities to encourage others um, uh, is really important. And I would also say it had, in this case, the added benefit of, you know, technology can often be a male-dominated field. Um, Many of the master's and PhD programs where where we're encouraging folks to get into are also male-dominated. And so to have a really effective communicator who also happens to be a woman talking about our work did have the added benefit of ensuring that women realized that that program was just as much for them as it was for. Anyone.
1: Yeah. Showing, showcasing other stories and, and helping That's right. Off on the work. Like that's you, exactly right. In the department. So it's a, it's a theme. Um, you mentioned there kind of the leadership experience from the military. And I just wanted to ask you, I think you've been back in the army longer than um, you were in before you um you were out. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the leadership lessons that you've learned or observed from your time in service. And, um, you know, especially along this theme of inclusive leadership that we're talking about.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I touched on, you know, it's kind of one of my first and foremost um, principles of really uh, creating opportunities to build teams that are dedicated to issues that are broader themselves that creates really strong bonds and allows folks to see beyond any individual differences that's certainly one looking at well how do i find the special sort of trait of each and everyone and bring that out when it when it matters most is obviously um, another another key one you know people often talk about um you know the military in so many ways is a leadership laboratory where you are learning opportunities to um, um you know to just sort of Lead through complex situations and complex uh, complex times. So, um, you know, I'm thinking of kind of experience in the kind of post don't ask don't tell world. And I've really found my time in the military has just been hugely beneficial to me. In addition to uh, helping me to get a world class education, um, it's also helped make me be a stronger and better leader, which is what I think the best things that our military can do. I've already mentioned, uh, you know, the desire to create mission driven teams. Uh, that are focused on uh, challenges that are larger than yourself because they help you to see beyond individual differences. I, I, I've mentioned the, the the power and the value of looking at each individual and finding what makes them special and bringing that out. Um, you know, that that has certainly uh, played a really fundamental role. The military also taught me the power of listening. Right. Um, people. May, may not always think that that would be the case, uh, particularly because you've got the rank, you have the responsibility, and these people are bound by law to follow your orders. But one of the best traits, the uh, best sort of lessons that I've had, and I've used it most recently here at my department, is to listen and observe for longer than might be comfortable. Um, at How does this organization tick? Why do we do things the way that we do? Um, what are our priorities? What is the culture? Um, And what is this organization's capacity for change, right? And so leaning into that period of time where you're listening, learning, and observing um, is a really important one. And then bringing your leadership team together to create a vision for the future, to change and create new goals. um, That to me has been a really, really uh, important lesson. It's been a valuable lesson. I use it at every single new stop along the way. Listen, learn, observe,
1: and then create an inclusive plan for the future. Along that kind of um, theme of inclusive plan, I, I think you told me a story about once you uh, were reinstated and the military, you had an experience where um, a commander sort of um, mm-hmm. bodied sort of inclusive leadership. And I wonder if you could relay that.
0: Yeah, I'm happy to. And this is just one of those examples where, you know, people talk a lot about uh, you know, people who were opposed to, um, integration of the military, of black soldiers being, or service members being able to serve in white units, uh, who, who opposed Truman. Uh, they often said they hid behind social experimentation is not right for the military. Similar, uh, with the repeal of the don't ask, don't tell people sort of use the sort of uh, red herring of good order and discipline and said that the military is not capable of social experimentation. Um, I fundamentally disagree. I think the military, the leadership laboratory that it is, and the uh, environment where, yeah, people actually do have to pay attention and follow orders because they are ba- you know, bound by law to do so, as long as those, those orders are not illegal, immoral, or unethical. Um, it's got strong leaders. And so when I rejoined the military, um, you know, there was an incident where uh, a senior non-commissioned officer was, was sort of using a gay slur, you know, not directed at someone specifically, but just sort of, you know, kind of sort of. Oh, that's you know, kind of sissy behavior or whatever it was. And the next day, my company commander, straight male, uh, pulled me aside. I, I wasn't out to folks in my unit, but my company commander knew this. Pulled me aside and he said, hey, I, I'm sorry that that happened. That is not the environment that I want to create for this unit. I know that there are people who, uh, who, who come from a range of backgrounds. I pulled that senior non-commissioned officer aside. Um, and, and I told him uh, that that's not going to fly here. That is not what we do, and don't ever do it again. And that was a hugely powerful moment for me, and it was one of those times when I realized all of our advocating for repeal and all of our saying that, that the military could handle that was validated by that company commander's behavior right at that moment. I'd also offer a second one. More recently, I, I, you know, I had an opportunity to serve in a unit that has uh, had, a, had a transgender soldier in it. And my, uh, my commander pulled me aside and said, hey, you know, um, do you think that soldier would be comfortable with me coming forward and, and just sort of asking them about their experience? Because I want to make sure we're creating an environment that is affirming and supportive of that person. Uh, and that was sort of the, another sort of validation moment where I knew, you know, it's not a perfect institution. It's not always going to get it right. But you have some really phenomenal leaders who are doing their best to create inclusive spaces. And I think They're leaning into that curiosity. They're willing to have those awkward conversations or uncomfortable conversations. That's how we make progress. That's how we move
1: forward. Mm. You know, those stories are so powerful. um, The lessons you took away and the lessons other leaders can take away. But also, I think because, you know, they probably um, shatter the perceptions that some Americans may have about the military. Those who, you know, aren't as familiar with it. And so it's really important for those stories to be conveyed so that folks can hear the experiences that you've had.
0: I think that's exactly right. And in this day and age, when so many people identify as something other than cisgendered or straight, and especially in Gen Z, the, the target population that you're trying to recruit from, effort estimates as high as 20% identify as something else uh, than sort of uh, the sort of default or norm that people were used to, it's incumbent upon the military to make sure they get it right. It's incumbent upon the military to make sure that they're in an environment where people can bring their whole selves to work, knowing that they're going to have to become a part of a team and have to shed a little bit of that. But but knowing that they're going to be respected and affirmed and seen uh, is really, really quite important. And the military has to get that right, in addition to something that I often say, that they really have to take seriously the challenge of um, uh, sexual assault and harassment, which I know they are taking quite seriously, but we do need to find new ways to address that.
1: Um, Tony, you've shared so many great stories about your incredible journey and persistence and, uh, your public service and leadership. I wonder if, um, there's any lesson that you wish that, you know, that you've learned that you wish that you had known early and earlier in your career that you would share with other leaders. Um,
0: oh, that's a tough one. I wish I'd given it a little bit more thought, um, you know, I think the lesson that I wish i had known like earlier on um, is that, you know, the benefits of, of taking risks and leaning into things that you aren't certain what the outcome is going to be, um, but as long as you're standing up for something that you believe in, um, is it, really valuable. Uh, and so, you know, my younger self, I wish I wouldn't have given so, so much worry about um, you know whether you're, you're going to be able to make it through this or bounce back from it or uh, or whether, you know, sort of experimenting in this way is, is, is going to prove worthwhile um, and so for me I, I, in, in hindsight I realized that being comfortable with with calculated risk is, is, has always proved valuable and, and useful um, and standing up for, uh, for what I believe is right has always worked out well and so I probably could have um, you know uh, not wasted so much mental energy worrying about certain things had I had I just had that confidence so i encourage other leaders to lean into that, take those calculated risks, do what you think is right, and uh, if it doesn't work out, you'll bounce back.
1: That's great advice. Well, Secretary Woods, Tony, um, you're a leader that many people look up to, as, and you're a role model, and you're also a chief influencer. So thank you so much for taking time to share your story with us. Thank you very much, Anthony. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Chief Influencer, a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board. If you know a leader who should be featured as a Chief Influencer, please nominate them at chiefinfluencer.org. For show notes and more, visit us at chiefinfluencer.org or follow Chief Influencer on LinkedIn. Until next time.